0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the In Bed with Maradona podcast. Uh, my name is Susie Schaff. I'm joined today by fellow editor uh, Stevie Green and a special guest, Rich Laverty. Rich Laverty runs the online content for the Offside Rule podcast and covers Football League and FA Women's Super League for Sportsbeat. He's also interviewed quite a few lovely women for In Bed with Maradona, uh, names such as Ada Hegeberg, Ramona Bachman, Georgia Stanway, and uh, quite a bit of the Birmingham City ladies. Um, we're talking today specifically about his interview with Stephanie Roche, which is on our website right now. And, uh, but first we want to kind of get a look into Rich's mind and how he got into uh, writing about and being interested about interested in women's football. Hey, Rich.
1: Hi, Susie. Thank you for having me on.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. Absolutely.
1: Uh, I mean, well, in terms of how I got into it, I mean, it was pure coincidence, really. I was at university about five or six years ago now. And, you know, I mean, everybody knows Leeds United, the football team. They had a very good women's team at the time. And we had a project at university where we had to follow sort of a local sports club for the for the year and I thought you know I'm not going to get access to the men's team so I looked at the women's team and the players they had, they had some England internationals at the time and I just sent an email off and said look can I come and do some bits and bobs you know some interviews, cover some and you know they said yeah and I've never looked back really because when I got involved they had their funding cut when the FAWSL started all the players left, they built Basically a brand new team and it kind of really enhanced my love for the women's game because, you know, I saw a lot of people pull together, a lot of people work hard to ensure the team could at least remain as Leeds United. They were never going to be the same team again, they were never going to be as successful. But you know, I just enjoyed going down to the ground, you know, just a few hundred people on a Sunday afternoon and And yeah, it just went from there, really. And as you know, I got involved with the offside rule and we cover a lot of of women's football there and and we're big advocates of women in sport and women in the media and it's just grown and and I absolutely love doing it. The access as a journalist is fantastic. It's second to none and yeah, I've never looked back, really.
2: Rich, do you you think that a lot of university students are missing a trick by not reaching out to the women's game more because... um, for an example i I when I got my level one coaching badge, um, the first I put an advert and the first teams that got in touch with me were were women's teams and while I was there, they were sort of explaining that the the step up is actually still quite short as opposed to in the men's game. Um, do you think there's more more scope for this? yeah, I do and and I think a lot of people I think England
1: we're still very ignorant towards women's football. We're not ignorant towards women's sport, I don't think. You know, when we watch the Olympics and, you know, even tennis at the moment with what Johanna is doing at Wimbledon, people really get behind it. But with women's football, there just seems to be a bit of a different attitude towards it. But, th- I mean, there are a few universities, particularly, that do designate and send students out. And I think that there's one university down in Derby that has three or four of their students going out to the European Championships next week which is great and I know the people who are involved in that really love doing it and as a journalist yeah because you know it can take you years and years and years to work work yourself to the top of the men's game and working in the Premier League whereas in the women's game I've only been doing it a few years and this year I've been to the FA Cup final at Wembley, I went to the Champions League final in Cardiff and I'm going to the European Championships on Sunday so as a aspiring journalist growing up why would you not want to do those things and get the access to the players to hone your interview skills to to get used to that environment and yeah I don't know why more people don't do it I 100% recommend people to get involved because okay you can argue all day long about whether the football is as good to watch it's a redundant argument it's a completely different sport you know it's going to be different to watch people just have to accept that but to work in it's fantastic. And yeah, as, as a young writer growing up, for me, to, to go off and interview people like Ada Hegerberg, who's one of the best players in Europe, you know, and have one on one time with her and one on one time with Steph Horton or Mark Sampson, you're not going to get that in the men's game growing up. You're just not. So yeah, I'd absolutely advocate more people getting involved.
2: And with that in mind as well, do you, you know, I think it's almost still a shame that in the year of 2017, you know we still talk about women's football in in such a way or not us in particularly but as a wider sort of conversation um and you know we, we sort of had the news break today uh earlier today um that lewis fc are now start going to start paying the women their women female players more uh, uh the same as as their male players yeah. um do you think it's taken too long to get to that point, or do you think it, that that sort of needs to grow at a grassroots level before it goes more mainstream? I
1: think it has to. It has to grow at a grassroots level first. I think for teams like Lewis that are non-league, it's not too difficult for them to offer that kind of parity. You're not going to see that, obviously, at, at Manchester City because they've got players who are on, you know, hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand pound a week. You're never going to see. Steph Horton or Jill Scott or anyone in the women's game on that money certainly not in the next well I don't know how long but certainly not anytime soon and I think you know there's a lot of teams at the moment still just breaking even or even struggling to break even and we saw what happened with Notts County earlier this year and I think a lot of teams are struggling to keep up with the resources that those big three have Manchester City Arsenal and Chelsea, they can go out now and they can attract stars from around the world. They can attract players from America. Each one of them brought a player in from America in the winter. And I think it has to grow from a grassroots level first. I think if we get too carried away with pumping money into it, it's going to go like the Premier League has, where Mm. the figures are wild now. You know, it's absolutely crazy the money that's being exchanged. And as Susie knows, you know, by Munich yesterday signed a fantastic player for you know, not even £30 million whereas in the Premier League people like Gil Sigurdson are being quoted as £50 million it's just mm. gone absolutely wild so I think the WSL just needs to grow slowly it's got a decent, solid fan base and we've just got to take it year by year, step by step and I think equal pay and things like that, they're fantastic and, and people can argue for it it's not going to happen because they just don't make the same money the the revenue, the TV figures, the sponsorship, it's nowhere close to the Premier League so if non-league teams like Lewis can do it then fantastic, it's great that they are but I don't think it's going to happen in WSL um, anytime soon the money isn't there and, and I don't think the money needs to be there, I think it's going along quite steadily at the moment I think fans enjoy it, there's certainly things you can change, there's things that aren't perfect but we're getting there and I think in terms of money, we just have to be pretty steady with it right now.
0: I think um, there's some parallels as far as like uh, uh, the Women's League in the United States. Um, You know, it stopped and restarted and stopped and restarted and stopped and restarted. There's been a few iterations over the years. um, And now it seems like it's finally in a place that's at least settled. You know they're not going to go broke again. It's not going to be they have to take a year off and regroup or do whatever. And it seems to be it seems to me that there are a lot of parallels. I think between that and and the European uh, women's leagues as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think I think the last thing we can afford here is to to do what America did and obviously you know close the league down and say we've got it wrong and, and start again because like I said, the attitude here is people are quite happy to, you know, have a go at women's football and, and sort of say it's rubbish and that nobody cares. And I think if the league folded, you know, it wouldn't be very good. You know, people would take every opportunity to to knock it down and say that it's failed. And we've obviously already had the schedule change where we've now decided to go back to a winter league because the summer league wasn't working. So it's baby steps you know that there's things that have been done wrong there's things that have been done right and yeah there are parallels definitely and I think we've just got to like I said we've just got to take it steady because it's a good league it's not perfect there's some good teams there's some great players coming across and it is competitive you know I can understand why fans of the smaller clubs are getting frustrated because those big three now do have that money to go and and buy whoever they want basically and it's difficult. There is a gap opening up, but you know any any league in the world, male or female, you know you'd look at the Bundesliga, you look at Liga, La Liga, Serie. A, again, in men's or women's, the teams with the most money, they rise to the top, and and that's just part of it. So, I think we've got to do what we can, the FA, to support the smaller teams that need more financial support, that need you know just just money to to run their ground, to to have decent training facilities, and you know, just keep growing it from there. You know, the more financial support it gets, the better it will be. And everything at the end of the day comes back to money, especially in football.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, So uh, your most recent interview was with uh, Stephanie Roche, uh, Ireland International, and currently with Sunderland. Um, What a fantastic interview, first of all. She seemed very open and... and, uh, very eager just to lay it all out there. Um, how great was it to to have that time with her?
1: Yeah, I think that's what's been great about doing this series of interviews because in the women's game, you know, it's not just as simple as every player walked into an academy at 16 years old, got a fantastic ten thousand pound a week um, contract, and you know they're well set for the rest of their lives. So many of them have had to really work their way up, play on the streets, play with the boys, and. And even when they make a career of it you know things go wrong because it's such a it's such an unstable lifestyle playing women's football and you know Steph more than anybody knows that because nobody really knew who she was until she scored that goal then all of a sudden everybody knew who she was you know she became famous overnight she had offers went to France went to America didn't work out you know I don't think I don't think those teams were really prepared to make it work for her and whether she was quite ready for that step and You know, she's come back, she got a serious illness and and she's playing for Sunderland now. So, yeah, there was a lot out there for her to talk about. And and that's kind of been the point of these interviews is to find people with interesting stories. And in terms of women's football in England, there's very, very few who are as interesting as Steph. And, you know, she was fantastic in in being as honest and, and open as she was. But again, that's the thing, you know, again, for journalists getting into women's football, you get this kind of time with the players. You can go and meet them. It's not all done at training grounds and, and stadiums with press people around. Me and Steph just we sat in a pub in Newcastle train station and we just talked. And that was it. You know, it was as simple <laughs> as that. It was as simple as that, and and it was fantastic. And you know, I, I thank Steph for being so open and honest. You know, people have been very very nice about the interview and, and the comments are always much appreciated but you can't write a good interview if you don't get good quotes so I have to thank Steph for that first and foremost
0: Was uh, was she the first woman ever up for the Puskus Award
1: correct? She was the first woman to make it to the final three yeah I think women have been nominated before there's no names off the top of my head but I think she did say that but yeah she was the first one to make it To the final three, she was just unfortunate. She was up in a World Cup year where Robin Van Persie and James Rodriguez were both up for goals that they scored at the World Cup and and obviously got a lot more attention on a much larger scale. But she still came second. She got herself in there in the middle of them. So she did very well. And and it was a great goal. You know, it was a goal that deserved it, whether that was Stephanie Roach or or Messi. You know, it was still a fantastic goal.
0: And that was for Piedmont, correct? Yes. Against Wexford, yeah?
1: I think it was against Wexford Youths, yeah. I mean, I've yeah. seen the video so many times, but because there's no, there was no graphics or anything, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, it was for P-Mount against Wexford Youths.
0: Okay, and, and, and that goal sort of propelled her into, into League 1, and, or League 1, pardon me. And um, it seems like maybe the language barrier was the most difficult uh, to overcome. Uh, do you think that's that's still a problem or maybe why not only the women, but men, uh, maybe from the UK, you know, Ireland, Scotland, uh, every, England, uh, are reticent to go to non-English speaking countries?
1: Um, I hope not. I mean, I like to think players would give it a go. I think talking to Steph, she just didn't settle. You know, it was just difficult for her. She was away from her boyfriend, away from her family. And I think when you do that for the first time, you know, she wasn't living in a a big city. It wasn't like she was at Lyon or or at PSG. You know, she was with Albi and I think she just found it difficult. I'm sure the language barrier was a problem. You know, she said none of her teammates spoke English. And I guess at that point you get quite isolated. But, you know, we've seen in the last week Tony Duggan has joined Barcelona and I certainly know Tony doesn't speak much Spanish, but I know she's working hard on it to to learn and that she can go out there and, and interact with the players. And, and Tony's working hard at that, and I think we should, you know, applaud her for making that decision. I think a few of us knew she was going to leave Man City. I don't think any of us expected it to be Barcelona, but you know, good on her because it's a fantastic opportunity. And I think for every story where it might go wrong, like Steph, I think hopefully there's a story like Tony where I'm sure it'll work out. I'm sure she'll see out those two years in Spain and, and maybe even more than that because she works incredibly hard and, and if she can settle and start playing well. And I think I think it will encourage more, you know, and, and with more foreign players coming to the WSL as well, it might persuade more players to think, well, I might get more playing time now moving abroad. I'm not guaranteed The playing time in the WSL that I was maybe two or three years ago.
2: Yeah, good point there because you hear so many stories about um, players in the men's game who will go to sort of smaller countries and smaller clubs just to get a break and and give Mm. themselves a chance at at least carving out a career. Um, But one thing that has always interested me is: do, do players in the women's game do they have access to? things like player liaison officers like the men do?
1: It's a good question actually I'm not entirely sure I I think the top clubs probably do I'd I'd be very surprised if if teams like Doncaster Bells or Bristol or Yeovil had that but they don't bring in as many foreign players obviously they they largely have British based Mm. players I'm sure if Manchester City bring players in from abroad I'm sure they'd have liaison officers from the men's side of the team that were there um, I've never actually asked it's a good question um, I'm sure they do I'm sure they do and the thing is coming over here obviously a lot of players from the continent they do speak English anyway yeah. obviously the players here going to Spain or to France or anything it's a bit different whereas generally a lot of people do speak English so Anybody coming here can fit in quite quickly, and there are foreign players anyway. You know, we've got a lot of Dutch players here, so if a Dutch player comes over, you know, they're not going to be on their own. Um, obviously, the Americans that have come over, it's not a problem. So, I think at the top level, they probably do have access to liaison officers, yeah.
0: I'm just thinking about, um, <clears throat> you know, obviously, I covered Bayern Munich. Uh, Bayern Munich women, like, they have to take German lessons. That's, you know, something... Anybody that comes over to Bayern is is, they have a neat little uh, studio uh, at the training center where they where they sit and they have tutors as well that teach them one on one German. Um, And I was wondering if if that might be kind of the same setup. But as you said, Rich, most players, especially coming from Europe uh, elsewhere, do speak some English. So it's maybe it's probably more easy to assimilate that way than going the other
1: yeah yeah I mean there are some players I know don't speak English really when I was out in Cyprus earlier this year I spoke to ji so young um, who plays for Chelsea and you know we had to use an interpreter because she she, she spoke a little bit of English but not enough to to do a, an English interview and she's been here for a few years now so I, I, it's obviously not a requirement to learn English but I'm sure that I mean, for someone like her coming over if she doesn't speak English and, and she's been here a few years, I imagine Chelsea have usually liaison an officers to make her settle in because, you know, it would be hard, otherwise it would be really difficult and, and she is still here and she's still playing and she's playing well. So yeah, I, I think they'll have that access at the top clubs and, and like I said, the lower ones I'm not so sure, but they don't bring in too many foreign players because they just don't have the budgets to
0: Right on. Um so Stephanie's now with uh, Sunderland um, what's going on with them what's what's the hardship currently
1: yeah they had a tough time of it um, they had a fantastic first year when they came into WSL one Beth Mead was absolutely brilliant and, and last season they kind of had that second season syndrome sort of thing where you know teams started to work them out they struggled a bit um, I think they were very thankful that Doncaster had such a poor year and I think it was a case of it was just the men's side of the club wanted to save some money you know I think they knew obviously they were they were getting relegated on the men's side from the Premier League that obviously costs a lot of money to go down from the Premier League these days and you know at the end of the day if if the men's side want to save some money it's easy for them to cut the women's team just as Notts County did and thankfully Sunderland haven't done it but the players are training full time, as far as I know. They're just on part time contracts. So it did obviously persuade quite a few players to leave like Beth. Beth went off to Arsenal and a few went to Reading and, and a few have gone elsewhere. So they've lost a lot of players. And it's not great, you know, to see a team reverting from full time to part time. But with players like Steph and, you know, they've signed a couple of players lately, they might just be okay still this season, but It is a shame, you know, to see a team going from full-time to part-time. We want to see teams going from part-time to full-time, not the other way around. But yeah, it's not been easy for them, but they're still there, thankfully. and, And hopefully they'll be there for a while yet because Sunderland have always been there or thereabouts. In women's football, there's several players in the England team at the moment that started their careers at Sunderland. And they have a lot to thank that club for. So hopefully we don't lose them anytime soon.
0: Fantastic. Um, moving on now, uh, you have an upcoming article on uh, in bed with Baradona on the Netherlands uh, women's national squad. Uh, mm. Euro opens on the weekend, and um, as tournament hosts, what legitimate chance uh, do the Netherlands have of 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 going anywhere?
1: Ugh, it will be tough. It will be tough for them. I think they're a bit like maybe England were four or five years ago. They're just a little bit behind that development curve at the minute. Whereas, you know, we just started our own professional league. Players were just going full time and we still weren't competing with the Frances and the Germanys. And it's a bit like that for the Netherlands. They've had a league for 10 years now. But after a few years, it merged with the Belgian league and it's only gone back to being the Dutch league. I think it was two or three years ago, and, and it only has eight teams at the minute. So I don't think many of them are full-time, if any, um, which is why we've seen a lot of players come over here today. Lika Martins, who's their best player for me on her day, joined Barcelona. Um, we've got their superstar striker, Mia Dima, is coming to Arsenal in August and she'll be the seventh or eighth Dutch international in the WSL. It'll be tough for them. They've got a tough group even though they were seeded in the top pot, they've got Norway who a lot of people say are the dark horses, I think they're more one of the favourites rather than a dark horse because they've got some fantastic players they've got Denmark in there who are again, a bit like the Netherlands a a real up and coming team with some good players and they've got Belgium in there which is a a nice little local derby, so it's not an easy group personally I think they'll get through it, I don't think they'll top the group and I, I think Probably a quarterfinal against Germany or Sweden might just be a bit too much for them. Home advantage might help. Their three group games have sold out. I'm not sure what the atmosphere will be like. Obviously, it's usually very different in the women's game. If the fans do get behind them, if it does spur them on, who knows? You know, we we see in football all the time what home advantage can do for teams that are slightly unfancied. So I think they'll get through the groups, but I think they're a bit way off the the France's and the Germany's and the England's yet. They're not far off, but I don't think they'll win it or get to the semi-finals. If they do, fantastic, and it'll do wonders for the game in the Netherlands, just like it did for us here two years ago when we came third at the World Cup. Um, But yeah, I think it's a little bit early for them yet, but they've got some fantastic players, and, and they're a country where, as the men's team is kind of on a downward spiral, the women's team is very much on an upward spiral.
2: I was um I was taking a look at the the Dutch women's league before we started recording and and it is quite a strange little league isn't it um you know you, Ajax and PSV have got a team who are obviously the most recognizable names but then you've got teams like Telstar and Achilles 29 yeah um you know it, it what's what's the league like at the moment is it is it up and coming like like the national team or is it is it stalled a little bit because obviously so many of their Big players are here now. Um, yeah. You know what? What's the story there? Well, I'm not going to
1: lie. I'm not an expert on it, but uh, <laughs> I think I think yeah, it's up and coming. I think Feyenoord announced the other day they were creating a, a professional women's team, which if so, is great. But yeah, I think players, you know, they're seeing their futures elsewhere at the moment. They, you know, at the end of the day, you can't get away from it. In women's football, there is a big financial incentive because if you can become a full-time professional that's not just career changing it's life changing you know it changes the way you can live it changes you know where you can live and and what you can do as opposed to if you're part-time and working a job alongside football so you know the top players they know they can do that by coming to England they know they can do it by going to Germany or going to France or going to Scandinavia so I think whilst the league is as it is now with just eight teams and and still very much semi professional, it's gonna be difficult for them to keep hold of their top players. But you know, I hope it can it can grow. The WSL has grown, the German league has grown, all the leagues will grow, you know, even the French league at the minute. They might have two of the best teams in Europe and probably one of the best teams in the world in Lyon, but beyond that, perhaps apart from Montpellier it's still a lot of teams are semi-professional and, you know, get thrashed week in, week out by Lyon and PSG. So I think for the Eredivisie in in Netherlands, it's about, again, like I said, with the WSL, just taking it year by year, steadily growing and and bringing through those players. And then hopefully one day, you know, they can take those players back to the Netherlands if, if they feel they can make a career for themselves now. But right now, anybody playing in the Netherlands they can't really make a career for themselves out of it there without doing something else at the same time.
0: So I probably should have mentioned the groups. I'm sorry for Euro. (laughs) Sorry about that guys. Uh, Group A is the Netherlands, Norway, Denmark, and Belgium. Group B is Germany, Russia, Italy, and Sweden. Group C is Austria, Iceland, France, and Switzerland. And group D is England, Scotland, Portugal, and Spain. Um, The women's Euro kind of strikes me as similar to the men's where it's a fairly strong overall competition. Uh, When you look at it, uh, I guess, compared to the World Cup, like they've got most of the great teams, except, um, I guess, for women's Euro, a couple of outliers would be, you know, it's mostly the World Cup heavy hitters, except for the United States and Japan and maybe Brazil, correct? Where like we're like the, the Men's World Cup, you know, it's all the European heavy hitters, and then you add in uh, the, a couple of South American teams, you know, to really flesh that out.
1: Yeah, and I think Mark Sampson has said, you know, that the Euros can actually be harder to win than the World Cup, because even though the World Cup, you throw in the USA, you throw in Japan, you throw in Brazil, And even teams that are really strong now, like Canada, Australia, you know, teams that are really tough to beat. But it's kind of spread over more groups. There's 32 teams and, you know, you do get those groups where you've got one or two weaker teams. At the last World Cup, we saw a few results where teams scored double figures. And you're not really going to get that in the European Championships because even though you take those teams away, it's condensed into four smaller groups so you get the likes of Norway playing the Netherlands you get Germany and Sweden in the same group you get England Spain and Scotland none of the groups are easy even for the top teams so I think it is it is harder to win and yeah you're right it is slightly more condensed like the men's in terms of yes you take away all the teams from around the world but it doesn't actually make it any easier to win or to qualify from your group Is there anyone you fancy as a dark horse this year? Can we count England as a dark horse? Um, We've never won it, so. No, I don't. I think England are definitely there as one of the favourites, whether they win it or not. I don't know. A dark horse, I think it's difficult because, like I said, the gap is still quite big. You know, these countries now like France and Germany and England that have professional leagues, you know, it's not just a case of you know, full-time against full-time where you think there can be a shock. You've got countries where you've got 23 players who are full-time against players that are still part-time and and that makes a huge difference fitness-wise. So I think for a dark horse to come in and win it with a few full-time players, it's difficult. I think Netherlands, Denmark, Spain. I think if there was one dark horse, it would probably be Spain because they're kind of on the fringe They've got a lot of players who are playing at a good level. We know what the Spanish are like in in any form of football. They play good passing football. They score goals. They've had some really impressive results this year. And when the group draw came out, I think we were all quite happy with Spain from pot two because it could have been Norway. It could have been Piersundaga's Sweden side. So I think we were quite happy with Spain, but the way they're playing... It's looking like a really, really tough game now. And, and Scotland, obviously, will be so up for it. You know, it's a big derby match. It's the first game of the tournament. They're missing a few key players, which should make it a bit easier for England. Um,
2: it's also I their say, first appearance at a tournament ever, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If I had to say one dark horse, I'd probably go for Spain. But I do think the winner will come from the kind of big five, France, Germany... England, Norway, or Sweden. If it comes from outside that, then we've had one hell of a tournament somewhere down the line.
0: (laughs) So, uh, just going on that, Rich, I think I can parse who you think is going to go through in each group. So, I'm going to say from Group A, you'd pick the Netherlands and Norway.
1: Yeah, just. It wouldn't surprise me to see Denmark go through, but I do think home advantage... We'll just see the Netherlands through. And I think for Norway, having players like Ada Hegerberg and Caroline Graham Hansen, they'll be just about OK. But that's probably the closest group. It's very unpredictable. And Denmark are a very good team.
0: From Group B, I think that's fairly obvious that it would be Germany and Sweden, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, Germany, they've dominated this tournament now for, for my entire lifetime. And Sweden have had a up-and-down year. They've lost one or two players. Things haven't been going particularly well. If there was going to be a shock, it might be them going out. But I think in the group stages, they'll, again, like I said with the Netherlands, they'll have just enough to go through. Um, but I don't think they'll top the group. I think Germany will will go through as group winners.
0: And in Group C, I'd imagine you'd pick uh, France and Switzerland.
1: Yeah, again, France, I think, are many people's favourites. They do have the tendency to mess it up on the big stage but on paper for me they have the best team they have the best players they've got a new coach so I think France will go through I'd like to see Iceland go through because it would be again a great story You know, with what happened last year and a potential quarterfinal against England again like last year would be a, an interesting story but I think Switzerland if everyone's fit and firing Switzerland will just sneak that second place
0: that would actually be fantastic. That was one of the best moments of of the men's World Cup. Is the Iceland Iceland going through? Absolutely, that was marvelous. Um, in Group D. So, are you going to pick England and Scotland? Are you gonna Are you gonna pick uh, Spain to overcome Scotland? Most likely, I would think yeah. England would be a group winners.
1: I hope so. Uh, I think. Spain will go through with England Yeah, I'd love to see Scotland go through um, But Spain have been playing So well this year I, I really can't see them not Being in the top two Like I said, Scotland are missing a couple of of Key players They just lack that overall depth England should go through Whether it's first or second Like I said, the, the game against Spain Will be really tough But I think we'll be disappointed if we don't go through as group winners. We'll certainly be disappointed if we don't go through at all. It would be an absolute disaster um, for Mark Sampson. After everything he's done, he do, he's done so well so far. He's big England up. So I think we'll go through with Spain. Um, that's nothing against Scotland. I'd love to see them go through. I just don't quite think they will.
2: What do you think's next for Mark Sampson? Ooh, come back
1: to me in a month. Um <laughs> <laughs> He's got a contract to 2019 and I think I think whatever happens he'll, he'll see that out. I think he earned enough good grace in 2015 to see that through. I think the big thing is that England are going to be in a transition after this tournament. We've got a lot of players into their 30s now. We've got a lot of players well into their 30s who this could easily be their last tournament. Um, and in friendly matches and training camps, Mark has brought a lot of young players into the squad. You know, he might not have picked them for the squad themselves, but he brings them into train and I think he's really looking at what his squad is gonna look like come the first World Cup qualifier in September. And I don't think the FA will want to change that. I don't think they'll want to disturb that process of Mark sort of settling on his next squad for the World Cup in two years. I think after the World Cup I think he probably will walk away. I think I don't think you're going to see anyone stick around as long as Hope Powell did. I think it's a very different game now. Mm. There's many, many options out there that could take the England job. There's some very good coaches out there who could take the England job. So I think whatever happens, unless it was a disaster and, and the players turned on him and didn't want to work within him anymore, then, then there's nothing you can do. You know, you can't sack 23 footballers. It, it falls on the manager. But I think Mark will, will be there after the European Championships, after the World Cup. I'm not so sure. I'd personally be happy for him to stick around. I think what he's done so far, you know, he's made us one of the challenges. He's given us the belief that we can do it. So, But, like I said, in a month's time, you don't know what's going to have happened. It could have all gone disastrously wrong. Or, you know, we could have won the Euros. So I I think he'll be there for the next two years.
0: So uh, looking at the Netherlands side, uh, they're relatively um – kind of new to the competition. They're 50 years on from their first official match, um, but they only went to their first major tournament in 2009, correct? Yeah. And um, and they, uh, it, it looks like they're, you know, kind of like the league, like they're up and coming. Can you talk to us uh, a bit about uh, a few of their stars?
1: Yeah, they are up and coming, and... But like I said, they've got some good players. They're a bit like a Scotland or a Spain, you know, where they've got half the team is is players who are playing at a really high level that have, that have kind of made it now that are full time professionals abroad, and the other half are kind of those players that maybe aren't quite there yet. Um, but I mean, the players that play here are fantastic. They've all come over here in the last eighteen months to two years. Um, the captain. Mandy Vandenberg plays for Reading at the moment, Um, she's a very very solid defender Shanice van der Sanden down the wing for Liverpool is rapid I've rarely seen a a female footballer as fast as she is Danielle van der Donk up front she scores goals, she's creative Dominique Janssen can play an array of positions and Sari van Vienendal again at Arsenal for me on a day is the best goalkeeper in the WSL she's fantastic and you know, Mia Dima is the one to watch, the Bayern Munich girl. She's just come to Arsenal. She'll join Arsenal in August. She scores for absolute fun, given how mm-hmm. young she is. And, and Lika Martins as well. She's having the year of her life um, over at Rosengard, signed for Barcelona today. Um, she's still got her best years ahead of her. So it's a young team, it's a developing team, but it is a very, very exciting team. And that's why I said, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see them do well and go far in front of their own crowd but yeah i just don't think they're there yet in certain positions i think they'll get caught out um a little bit but there's no reason that they won't be exciting to watch and and they won't be successful for tournaments to come because a team like the netherlands should be you know they've always had a reputation in football of of being one of the the giants of football and, and international football and you know, hopefully, the men's team now is is kind of falling away and, and struggling. The women team can sort of replace that and and give the fans something to shout about because they are good enough. And if they can develop the players, then they're going to be a real force to be reckoned with um, over the next few tournaments.
0: I can only imagine if if uh, if the Dutch get behind the women's team like they do the men's, that yeah, uh, the that's sort of a riotous. It's one of the more fun and, uh, fun to hang out with, uh, international fan groups in football. I think I go to euros, I don't go to world cups. So, uh, the Dutch are always a good time and you get the Dutch and Germans together and there's a little bit of yelling, but there's an awful lot of drinking. So that's okay. Um, but they're kind of, they're crazy and they're loud and they're cool. And I think, I think if they, if they can, uh, get behind their women, um, especially in their home country. Um, that that that's definitely a positive thing going forward for the side.
1: Yeah. And, you know, like I said, you, you've got to just take things step by step and, and hopefully the fans do get behind it and speaking to the players. Well, as you'll know, when the interviews go out on Friday, you know, they're very optimistic about how the country is getting behind them. And, and like I said, their three group games have all sold out, which is fantastic. And I think on Sunday, I think the stadium they've got on Sunday is about 23,000. So if they have 23,000 fans in there, you know, that'll be fantastic for their opening night. And they're going to need it. You know, it's a tough group. Norway's going to be the toughest game they play in that group. And you don't know, do you? Opening night in front of 23,000 fans, they might just surprise everyone. And, you know, home advantage can can do that but it's about time somebody went out and toppled Germany whoever it is because Germany's record in this competition is just beyond insane it really is I don't think it'd be the Netherlands but let's just hope there's a bit of unpredictability and I think as teams around the world get stronger um, I think we'll see that and that's why nobody really knows who's going to win this tournament
0: okay all right well Thank you, Rich, for your comments and your lovely conversation. Uh, we all look forward to the tournament starting this weekend and your article on the Netherlands on In Bed with Maradona on Friday, correct?
1: I think so, yeah. That's what I've been told. Uh, um, <laughs> to. I just listen to all you guys and that's it.
0: Right, you, uh, you're talking to two editors here and we don't know. So we're <laughs> just going to assume that that's correct. Um my name is Susie Schaff I can be found on Twitter at F U S S B A L L S U S I E and I um am also a podcasting and writing for Mia San Roots, uh their English site which is at M I A S A N R O T underscore c o m and that podcast will debut in a couple of weeks uh joining me today is stevie green stevie where are you at
2: i'm at stevie green 11 uh as in xi um you can occasionally find me popping up moaning about aston villa otherwise i'm right here
0: (laughs) and thank you so very much to our special guest today rich laverty and rich where can we find you
1: you can find me at Rich J. Laverty, which is pretty much just my name with my middle initials. So it's not the most inventive Twitter username in the world, but that's where you can find me.
0: Well, fantastic. Now you know where to get in touch with us all. You can find um, the In Bed with Maradona site, of course, on Twitter at In with WI. Maradona, or on the website, all spelled out correctly, in com. Again, my name is Susie Schaff, and thank you for joining us. We will chat with you soon. Bye
2: bye.